It just makes me smile. Seeing people having such a wonderful time and then they enjoy what they're eating and it's a lovely coming together and it's an age-old thing. It's where people used to do it. You know, it's been for centuries. That's where people get together. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. The modern food media often focuses on the next big thing, the emerging trends and the emerging young talent. But for anyone carving a path, mentors that have done it all before can help the emerging talent navigate the challenges. What does it take to have a meaningful and rich career in the industry and leave an indelible mark to? Lisa Van Handel is one of Australia's most awarded and respected restaurateurs with over 35 years of dining excellence. Lisa, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Anthony. Very well. Well, it's an honour to have you on the show and look forward to hearing yarns from over your career. Um, how are things at the moment? Uh, things are really great, actually. We're enjoying um, having a look at what's happening on the dining scene and uh, just yeah, taking some time. COVID made me slow down, which was probably a good thing. What was that like for you to, to slow down after such a rich career, which we'll get into it uh, in a little bit, but... That slowing down is not a very um, sort of hospitality trait. Was it Was it unnatural for you? No. It was very unnatural. It took me a long, long time, actually. It was um, to not be waking up every day with that hum of activity in your brain and uh, um, thinking about the next thing and tomorrow and, you know, a year away. It's, uh, it was quite extraordinary, actually. But it's probably been a good thing for me. Uh, you've been involved in some of Australia's very best uh, venues, um, but what what have your thoughts been about the industry and the sort of upheaval of the last couple of years? Do you think there's a, a new dawn and approach to hospitality emerging? Well, I, I think there is. There's um, a, a different culture. People are very aware of that. I think it's probably an easier um, career to have as an employee because the hours are so uh, so set. You have a very definite um, sense of self. You um, and so I think it's a bit easier as an employee. As an employer, I think it's a little bit more difficult. I think that um, that it's, it can be quite tricky these days navigating the extraordinary amount of. Uh, what would you call it, compliance, and um, not that you don't want to, but there's just so much that you have to do on the background, and all you really want to do is supply a wonderful venue and give people a great time. Well, uh, you've certainly done that over uh, a few decades. But Take us back to when you were young. What sort of role did food play in your family growing up? Well, it was interesting because I had a, um, a British mother who was um, a full-time GP and she had six children under 10. And uh, so it was very simple, uh, very simple British cooking. So there was, an, and also I grew up in the country. It was a bit of a culinary wasteland except for one good restaurant, uh, which I went to twice in sort of 18 years. So there was nothing really going on. So I don't know where it came from except that I used to really enjoy cooking for people and that I also um, was a huge reader. So I used to read everything. I mean, even Eden Blyton's book, you know, The Magic Fireway Tree had these beautiful pop biscuits filled with honey. So anything I could read about uh, just really filled me with um, an interest in food because it certainly wasn't surrounding me. And it was um, American Gourmet was, was one of those things that I latched onto very early on, which had brilliant articles, shocking recipes, but brilliant articles and <laughs> really, uh, really created an interest in me in, in food and what it could be. So I had those two things. I loved making people comfortable and I had a real interest in food, but that was where it all started, I think. 
in those early days, do you remember the sort of food or feasts or a particular feast that you cooked for people that um, sort of spoke of that beginning for you? Well, it was um, it was funny. I took a when I was a little bit old. I took a trip to Japan with John, my partner, and knew nothing of Japanese cuisine, and came back and proceeded to do a. Uh, a banquet for people just recreating everything I'd done and it was quite funny because no one had ever seen raw fish on rice and um, they didn't know what to do with it or how to eat it and things like that. So I used to really throw myself in the deep end cooking for people, cooking different things and hope that it worked out and it was usually delicious. So that worked. (laughs) (laughs) What were your first steps into the industry and what was it like for you? Um, it was, uh, well, they were crazy days back then, weren't they? It was, we came to Melbourne and opened, um, just opened, John was always amazing at finding locations. So he found a place in Chapel Street. It was around the time of Ecuchina, I suppose, and Deshano over in um, South Melbourne. And we um, promptly and um, opened Pronto Brasserie. And it was just a crazy hit from the beginning and it was seven days a week. It was open from 10 o'clock in the morning till 12 at night and we just worked and worked and worked and learned along the way. And um, and we didn't have an alcohol licence for a long time, so it was BYO. And we just provided – and it was just all work, but it was, a, it was a busy, thriving place. People loved it. It had a great energy. Um, we were learning about things all the time ourselves, you know, and learning how to deal with chefs. That was interesting. <laughs> but, um, but we had a real team camaraderie and some great staff, so that was really fun. But, goodness, we worked hard. What did, what did you take from that time and what surprised you about running a, such a busy business like that? Um, <laughs> just how busy life can be and how much you can fit into a day, I think. I think we don't, we don't finish work at one o'clock in the morning and then we go to the hardware club until whenever. So we, um, we, we quite lived the life. Um, what do we take away? Well, one of the main things I took away was um, a keen desire to not only run the floor but to be on the other side of the pass and never be in a situation where a chef can hold it over you um and so which kind of led to me having a bit of a stint at, I worked at the Latin I decided to go and work at our favorite restaurant of the time and I had um a year and a bit in the kitchen there so that was interesting for me how difficult was it working in a commercial kitchen compared to um feeding people as you as you sort of grew to love Oh, goodness, such a difference. Um, obviously, the numbers, the pressure, the um, the timing, the service, the um, consistency, it was a, a huge leap, obviously. But, but still always that innate sense of wanting to make sure that they were comfortable and okay and having a good time and um, the food on the plate was, was wonderful to eat and delicious. You know, the, um, it, it was just, I don't know, it was a real drive in me to make sure all those things were right. The success of Pronto, where did that lead to for, for you? Uh, where did it lead to? Well, we sold Pronto after five years and we had a bit of a break. But in the meantime, we'd been, um, as I said, I did that stint in the kitchen at the Latin um, with um, Bill Marchetti, which was wonderful. Met some great people and a few of whom came to work with us at Stoke House. Um, but we had, um, uh, we'd been casing St Kilda as I said, John's always very good with locations and we'd been visiting this little run-down shack on the beach that people used to go to and it was the only place there and it was um, run by a very grumpy German 
and some staid ladies and they served delicious European cakes and Devonshire teas and it was a funny little um, plastic screen veranda that you couldn't see through and no real appreciation of where it was. So we tried for a couple of years to try and get onto that and move things around and approach the owner and the council and everybody. And then we decided um, we got married and on our honeymoon, after two years, the tender came up for the Stokehouse. Oh, wow. So timing was extraordinary. Um, so, and I remember sitting on my bed in the in a hotel in Paris, um, sort of producing menus for the for the tender and writing what we were doing. We'd be doing for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and uh, faxing them through to the other end to go through into the tender. So it was um, it was an interesting timing um, for us. But we got back and then. We eventually we got it, and we were very happy to do so, and that's where it started. It's an incredible, iconic uh, site and restaurant that's had influence for a couple of decades now. What, what was it like with the building and trying to create um, the restaurant that you eventually created there? Were there challenges with council and the building? Oh goodness, yes, yes. It was um, an old wooden building. Uh, we had some fun. It was a bit like the Wild West down there. Um, and it was, <laughs> well, it was really, well, actually St Kilda was. There was Bojangles down the road, which was a bit of a, bit of a you know, you'd find bodies there during the day and all different things were happening down there. But um, so St Kilda was, was pretty raw in those days. But it was interesting, though, because people were wanting somewhere to go to, at the beach and somewhere to be, and that's what I think we built. And we were sort of confused that there was no real access to the beach and understanding that people wanted to be looking at it, even if they don't, didn't want to tip their toes into the sand. But um, but I remember we, we were building as we went. We did a 10-day turnaround once we got the keys, which is extraordinary, because we just wanted to be open for summer. And we um, threw our team in and our first chef was the brilliant but eclectic, eccentric John Gallagher and he created a great menu. And we opened and we were busy from the second we opened. And it was, um, I suppose, one of the building things that we always remember was uh, we were we had a 30th birthday around on the right-hand side and they'd taken over the whole right-hand side and we told them, you cannot go out on the veranda on the right-hand side, but please use the front one. Well, they snuck out there, didn't they? <laughs> With their glasses of champagne. And next minute we hear this almighty crash and the, um, the balcony had dropped a meter that they were all standing on. And we went round the corner and they'd landed on the, underneath the stokehouse was a whole bank of freezers and things left over. And it had landed on top of the freezer. So they're all standing there with their champagne. Not a drop was spilled. Not a drop was spilled. And they all climbed out and promptly came back in and started partying again. So just things like that were, were rather challenging, yes. <laughs> the council was very supportive, though. They were very, very happy. There was a, the, the tender was quite tricky. There was a lot of, um, lot of things we had to tick boxes on. But we did all of that. And, uh, and then we just opened and it just went from there. The influence of the Stokehouse is pretty extraordinary. Um, do, do you have any um, fond memories of, 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 of the Stokehouse and, and why do you think it's so special to Melbourne? Oh, goodness, so many memories of the Stokehouse. Um, it was uh, so special, I think. Well, it was one of one of the first places down on the beach, I suppose, apart from Jean-Jacques. Um, but it was 
people would just come down. I think they discovered that Melbourne had a bay um, and actually a beach. You know, we live in the shadow of Sydney and its wonderful beaches and everyone sort of dismisses Melbourne as a beachside venue, but it gave them, they could turn their back on the city and look out and and, uh, and see the water. I think that was pretty special. So many memories of um, uh, great birthdays and anniversaries and wonderful long afternoons in the sunshine and um, and just creating that um, that area for people to actually enjoy that part of Melbourne. I think that's why. I think that's why they love it and still do. <laughs> You've been involved in so many influential venues in Melbourne over the last um, couple of decades, Prince of Wales, Hotel, Circa the Prince, um, Long Grain, Long Songs, so many. What's been um, sort of the real highlights for you with venues that um, – that you, that you really sort of look back on fondly? Oh, gosh, so many highlights. I don't know where to start. Um, it's, uh, uh, well, I mean, it, it's, it's things that you, you learn, I suppose, from as you go along as well. Um, one of the things I really had to learn how to do was, uh, was um, delegate. <laughs> and it took having uh, a baby to do that because I was so hands-on. And then, um, and then we decided to, then I got pregnant again and we decided to, take on the Prince of Wales and one of the exciting things about that was putting um, 11 venues under one roof you know and opening them gradually that was one of the first places to do that I think Um, we loved loved doing accommodation that was uh, part of that whole nurturing hospitality thing there's so many different areas in hospitality and we tried to sort of stuff them all under one roof (laughs) but um but opening um, Mink Bar was, was great, that sort of Russian-themed vodka bar underneath uh, and doing things like putting in booths that had green and red lights, that buttons you could press, and if you close the curtains and press the green button, it meant the staff would come in, and if you had the red button on, it meant um, don't come in. <laughs> so creating little tricky things like that in bars and and, uh, and the people who came and had dinner and enjoyed it. And we'd have Lenny Kravitz walking through the band room at the live music venue and and taking him down the back way to the to the saloon bar, which was the gay bar, and he's going, this is my kind of place. And having Sting doing yoga on the, the deck upstairs, you know, because he stayed for a month at the hotel and just um, just wonderful things. There's so many things. And, of course, then there's the um, the restaurant itself, Circa, which was a very special part of our, our what would you call it, legacy, I suppose. Great things. Well, the alumni that came from that kitchen is is extraordinary. What does it feel like having so many young professionals come through your venues and go on to become the voice of, of Melbourne in their own venues? Oh, that's one of my um, greatest joys, greatest joys. And we, we visit them often wherever they're doing things. And um, if I can say it, terribly proud, I think. It was. Um, it really was. The, the alumni, I always think of it as an octopus, you know, in hospitality where, where they've just gone out and done their things. And whether it's the wine store, you know, the Prince Wine Store, that then we built the bigger one in South Melbourne and the wine program that we introduced early on and they'd all, um, all the young sommeliers had come and either work with us or learn from Philip Rich's courses and um, 
or if it's the uh, um, event, you know, the event spaces that, that have come out of there and the people we've worked with. Very, very proud of the young people who've come through and done their thing. I mean, a lot of the, lot of the chefs that went through Circa, Dave Moyle, Matt Wilkinson, um, Andrew McConnell, Ben Shuri, you know, it's, um, it's wonderful to see that. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And, and a lot of the wine industry as well, which, which yes, we're very proud of. Very proud. One of the key features of, of your venues has always been that um, the art of hospitality and the precision of the front of house. T- tell us a bit about your theory and, and the approach that you have in delivering that. Oh, goodness, that's one of my favourite topics. I think they're um, the most un- unsung heroes and the essence of hospitality, really. Um, it, it just it's one of my babies. It's why I was the national judge for Appetite for Excellence for so many years because I really felt that it was so important to give them something to be recognised by as well. Um, it, it really it, that that sense of hospitality I think is what keeps people bringing. They don't know why if they've had a good time. They don't know why they're comfortable. They just know they are. And I can't remember who said it. It doesn't matter what you what you eat or what you drink. It's how you, people make you feel. And that's where it comes from. And it was very interesting. I, I just recently um, popped into a supermarket to pick something up and was struck by this young girl who, um, apart from being quite attractive, was had the most extraordinary sense of um, service and couldn't help looking after herself. And I said, have you ever thought about having a career in hospitality? And she said, well, I thought I was too old to learn. And she said, but I just love making people happy and making them comfortable. And I said, that's why you should do it. You know, so I'm still scouting. I'm still keeping an eye open for staff. <laughs> but that's that's a really big thing for me. And I love teaching people and I love teaching managers how to train people and interview people and um, bring out that real essence because you can you hire attitude, you can teach skills, but it's all about that attitude. You mentioned um, the Appetite for Excellence uh, program that you are heavily involved in, and tell us about mentorship. What, what do you what do you say to those in the front of house that are part of that competition, or even your staff, um, about um, their profession and how they can get the best out of it? Um, I try and hi- highlight to them exactly what they they don't realise what they're learning when they're in hospitality, and it's something I also used to do when I used to mentor year 12 girls um, at school and try and get them interested in hospitality is they just have no idea what they're learning once you're in the middle of looking after people. Uh, it's, it's you know, harness that, that, nurt, that, what would you call it, a genuine nurturing thing that a lot of girls have and a lot of boys. But it's, um, it's just that, that bringing out things, you know, and, and uh, making sure that, you know, they, they just learn so much efficiency and economy of movement and thinking 10 steps ahead and people management, stress management, crisis management, let alone the food and wine knowledge and peer exposure and things they have. So what they can actually get out of it is, as well as what they can put into it. And, uh, and it's not, you need, it takes dignity and intelligence to serve people. And if you can harness that and make them feel good about themselves, I mean, and you have a you know, you have all the ingredients for someone who's actually a great hospitality person. You've um, influenced Melbourne's dining scene um, with so many venues. How much have you seen the city um, change in the last couple of decades in regards to restaurants and and um, and the offerings? 
oh goodness, it does change. It goes in waves too. One minute St Kilda's the hot spot, the next minute the city, and then it's back to St Kilda, and then it's North Fitzroy, and um, it moves around, doesn't it? It's um, the changes are um, the, well. I think that there's been a big boom back, which is wonderful after COVID. We won't talk about COVID, uh, but just um, then you have. I think there's space for everything. There's space for the for the really big high end places um, where people want to go and have big celebrations or show off or just have a great time. And then there's so many wonderful little little bars and little places, which is often where people start out once they've been in hospitality and they put their entire passion and life on the line and they go and they open these wonderful, small, intimate, um, very curated places. So it, it, Melbourne's extraordinary for its dining scene and its bar scene. We're so lucky. You haven't just explored uh, Melbourne. You also opened some venues in Byron Bay as well. How did, how did that come about? Oh, yes, Byron Bay. <laughs> well, we used to, we used to, um, much talked about Byron Bay. We used to always go to Byron Bay for our, our holidays and we used to stay at the Beach Hotel. And we um, we had the prints and all of those sort of things in, and so we were well into hospitality. And we heard that the Beach Hotel was for sale, and we met with um, John. Met with John Cornell. It was very private. He was very. He knocked back a lot of offers for the Beach Hotel because he just didn't like what people were planning on doing. Very protective. John met with him over lunch. Um, he liked what he saw and heard, and he said, "But uh, you'll have to meet Delvine." And so that night we just uh, went for dinner and it was a little restaurant in Bangalore and we sat there and I think that John must have knocked Delvine under the table because at one stage he just raised his glass and said, and it was a handshake deal, which is extraordinary in this day and age. Um, and he sort of raised his glass and he said, I'd like to make a toast to the new owners of the Beach Hotel. So it was um, it was very special because it meant that we got the nod of approval. They were very protective of what they'd built and the community there. And uh, and that was a very special beginning. So, yes, it was a great story. And then, well, we uh, Dave Moyle went up and we opened Pacific Dining Room up there, probably a little ahead of its time, I think. Uh, but that was, um, that was a great thing to do and we just loved being up there and taking on that heaving big bar and music venue and um, it was great. It's been really good fun. Was it different to venues that you had in Melbourne and did you have to have a different approach for the market there? Oh, yes. It's, it's extremely about community and the locals up there, which is a wonderful thing. Uh, they were great support from them. They were all a bit nervous about us coming in, you know, people from Melbourne. Um, but they soon relaxed and, and we embraced the culture. Um, the You know, the, the um, Lifesaving Club was a big part of our um, sponsorship, all that sort of thing. So it was, a, it was different, but... The wonderful thing about Byron Bay is everyone's up there to have a good time. So, and if you can give that to them in a safe and um, in a safe way, then it's uh, it's a great business to be in. Great business to be in. But it was um, it was a little bit different, you know. I'm not a beach babe, <laughs> but uh, but um, I'm a bit of a city girl. But it's been a wonderful thing. Um, John's uh, second daughter Elkie moved up there to manage the whole thing, and she's established her life up there. So it's changed life for a lot of people. But it's um, no, it's been a really good time up in Byron Bay. We really, really enjoyed it. Um, just just as the pandemic landed, I know you didn't want to talk about COVID, but um, you you let go of the beach house just before it sort of all happened. But tell us about that period of time and what it was like. Uh, what the letting go or the uh, uh, afterwards? 
Yeah, of the of the beach hotel. Oh well, that was um that was a it felt very strange. It really did. But also because COVID knocked on the door the next day, we were probably highly relieved. Um, but that was a big, it's like letting go of any of your businesses. It's like uh, cutting off a limb for a while, isn't it? It's uh, um, what happened after that? Uh, well, we, still, well, we, we were still in Melbourne. We still had long grain. We still had all that sort of thing going on. We still go to Byron. Byron's changed a lot. It's been discovered. Um Great businesses up there, great places to eat. It's always been a wonderful, um, a wonderful place for which is what our, we drew us to the food side of Byron, and creating something there was extraordinary produce. And everyone talks about produce now, but it's um, it really is an extraordinary produce. And and you know the very fecund valleys and people who settled up there, you know, thirty years ago with um, extraordinary livestock and and. Um, produce and greenery and everything. So that was really special and, and it's really been embraced up there. It's gone a little berserk lately actually. You, there's so many places to eat. So it's um that's been wonderful. But for us, I mean we're still up there we're still up there quite a bit. We enjoy visiting. And um yes. It's been a good time. What what are you doing these days? You've uh, had so many influential venues. Um what are you up to at the moment? We're just waiting to see what's happening in the world. <laughs> well, we've got a couple of things on the go development-wise, but uh, we're just, uh, we were sort of happy. It was 35 years. You know, we had long grain for 15 years and other places for 20 years. We were quite happy just to step back for a little while there and have a look and see how things settle down because it's um, pretty difficult, I think, for hospitality these days. But uh, But for all the people who stood in there and actually hung on in and, and made it work for them. A huge congratulations. That was a very difficult time. And I I worry for the um uh for the representation of our industry in government and things like that. I think that's something that should be really worked on. But but uh, so we're just waiting to see and doing a few things on the side. We'll just we'll just see. Never say never, Huck. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um you reminded me of of long grain. There's been so many venues; it's hard to sort of name them name them all. We'd need to do a five part series. But <laughs> fifteen years for long grain is is quite extraordinary. What what's some of your fond memories of of that venue in Melbourne? Oh, long grain was the best party place and just delicious food. I think that was the thing they they kind of they didn't introduce a, a cocktail, you know, cocktails to Melbourne. But gosh, when they came, it was you know the stick cocktails and this and that. And I don't think people had actually ever had that in Thai restaurants before, except for Long Grain in Sydney. It was um, it was just fun. The, the the soundtracks, the 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 drinks, the food was delicious. Marty Boetz was you know uh, great fun to work with when he was here, and um, Sam Christie was uh, was you know really passionate about what he was doing. So we just had a great time. And it was such a good building, that building in um, Little Burke Street too, the old stables, you know. It was such a historic building and quite iconic and, you know, they haven't uh, haven't changed the interior much at all. So that stands, you know, that's a bit of a testament. It's quite beautiful in there. Um, and just the food was just outstanding and, and very um, labour intensive. That was one of the things with long grain. Every herb is picked and every single curry paste is made from scratch and uh, so that was a that was a great thing we really enjoyed that time 15 years of delicious food and good times 
and hard work. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that a career in hospitality now is um, much easier than in the past with the sort of change of changing of culture. What advice would you give to young people um, looking to move into hospitality and, and build their career? What advice would I give them? Um, don't go in with an open mind. Don't go in asking, you know, what's your working from home program, which is what <laughs> because you're in the wrong industry. <laughs> um, go in with an open mind, but go in with it with um, uh, take all the passion you have for 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 the industry, and if you even if it's just a love of food, and go and see what there is because there's so many different avenues and hospitality and what you can actually work towards and be in. There's there's being on the floor, there's being management, there's being HR, there's uh, food development, there's so many different things. So go in with an open mind, um, go in preparing to work hard because you know to get somewhere in anything in life you have to work really hard, and that's. Where you get the rewards as well. It's a bit of a shame that those sometimes those extra hours that chefs used to do, that's when they could actually, that weren't in service, that was when they could stand beside the, beside the executive chef and learn things, you know. So you worry about whether they're not, they're getting all the technique and all the, um, the learning they want out of their jobs these days. So I would just go in with an open mind, um, go in, prepare, be prepared to work very hard and enjoy what you're doing and be a sponge, soak it all up and, um, and, and bring every element of your own natural hospitalitarianism, there's no such word, um, to the fore and you'll be snapped up. There's, um, there's great opportunities in hospitality at the moment. You mentioned that the front of house are the great unsung heroes of the industry, which I absolutely agree with. Do you think consumers after the last couple of years have a, a greater sense and understanding of um, restaurants and, and appreciation for them? Ah, there's a good question, Huck. Um, they should have, <laughs> having to cook at home for the last two years. Uh, well, one would think that would be the case, but I am hearing that people are being quite rude and belligerent, which is a shame with staff. Uh, but I think that uh, hopefully they would have a greater understanding of what it takes to actually put a good meal on the plate and to be looked after because um, – you know, we all know that prices are rising. It's, it's what I mean when I say it's a tricky time for hospitality. The the cost of actually putting something on a plate or a drink in a glass, everything's just gone up. And probably for the first time, hospitality is being allowed to actually go, we can't make it work unless we put the prices up. So I hope that people understand and they realise what it takes to actually get it there. It's, you know, it really is a work of passion and love to do what they're doing um, and in providing for people. I hope they enjoy it. There'll always be, you know, a few dodgy operators, I suppose, but I think there's a genuine want to look after people, you know, and, and provide a great experience. So I do hope people are I do hope people are understanding that. And if they're not, they shouldn't be going out. Stay at home and <laughs> whinge at <Yes>. home. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we, you've created uh, venues that will live in the hearts of uh, people for um, for the rest of their lives with incredible meals and experiences. But what do you love about what you do? Oh, gosh. It, it just comes back to that. It just makes me smile. Um, seeing people having such a wonderful time and then they enjoy what they're eating and it's around the table kind of thing. I have a real thing about tables that are too high and you can't lean across and converse with people. It's um, it's a lovely coming together and it's an age-old thing. It's where people used to do it. You know, it's been for centuries. That's where people get together. So it's that. It's a, There's also 
people go also go out and, and um, to learn about you know beautiful new wines and different cuisines and it really has become it should be one of the most important parts of people's lives is is just enjoying that if they can afford to obviously but it's just such a lovely thing and it's just it just makes me really happy seeing people having a wonderful I'm smiling now just thinking about it and even talking about it it's a very special part I I am too and and um, I feel like it's lunchtime and I always smile when that's the case. Um, Lisa, uh, it's an honour to have you on Deep in the Weeds today just to hear a little bit of your story. Um, your influence has been absolutely astounding. Um, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Thank you so much, Huck. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.